Thank you, Richard, and good morning, everybody. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we, uh, we proclaim together Jesus as our King, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would teach us more this morning what it means to be kingdom people. Amen. So during uh, lockdown, you know, when we, we could do very, very little, I decided that I was going to watch The West Wing. This had been on my kind of very long list of things to do. And if you know The West Wing, you'll know that that's quite an undertaking. It's uh, 154 episodes. There are two specials, and it's spread across seven seasons. And The West Wing is um, it's an American drama that follows the presidency, um, the two um, presidencies of Josiah Bartlett, who's played by Martin Sheen. And in series six, we meet Matt Santos, who, um, who will become the Democratic candidate at the end of President Bartlett's second term. And while he's a senator, um, San Santos, Matt Santos, he doesn't have the same kind of public profile and so he begins his campaign by um, he needs to kind of build momentum so he does a lot of meeting and greeting people he gets out and about um, ordinary Americans he shakes lots of hands to get himself known and there's one particular episode where he turns up in the early hours at, at the tip to help people do their recycling um, and all this is about getting out amongst the people to build um, momentum before his first big speech in which he will uh, deliver his political manifesto or vision as he seeks to win the Democratic nomination for president. There are parallels, some would say, between a presidential campaign and our reading from Matthew's Gospel this morning, because here we have Jesus going about through Galilee, meeting and greeting people, healing them of their sickness, getting rid of demons and evil spirits, culminating in his kind of first big speech or the first big speech recorded for us in Matthew setting out what people can expect if they follow him. Some have even called the Beatitudes here at the start of Matthew 5 a manifesto of the kingdom and we'll come back to unpack what that means a bit later. Last week, if you were um, with us in church or online, you will know that we started a new sermon series on Matthew's Gospel. And Seb was helping us look at the first three chapters. And as you read, as we read through those chapters, those early chapters, it's clear that one of the things which Matthew sets out to do is show how Jesus has come in fulfillment of the biblical story, which begins right back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Um, Matthew sets out to show how Jesus is part, part of God's rescue plan for God's people. And last week, we began to see how Matthew's gospel, or we saw how Matthew's gospel is littered with references to the Old Testament, showing how Jesus is not just part of God's rescue plan, but he is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And at the very, very start of Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, Matthew, he, he carefully traces, if you remember, Jesus' ancestry, his genealogy, showing that he is a descendant of Abraham. That's the founding father of God's people, the Israelites. And Matthew tells us in his very first 
the very first verse of his gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's anointed king, God's chosen king. King and kingdom are big themes in Matthew's gospel. They're key themes in all four gospels, but Matthew is particularly keen to emphasize how Jesus is the rightful and long-expected heir to the kings of the Old Testament. Jesus stands in the line of David, Israel's greatest king. He is the king which God's people have been looking forward to now for centuries. They've been waiting for this king to come since Israel ceased to be an independent nation following the Babylonian exile. And in the centuries which followed that exile and the return of God's people, hope had become focused on the promise of a new king who would liberate Israel and restore the temple to its former glory. In the Gospels, Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of those hopes. He is the Messiah. He is, as the Magi believe, the King of the Jews. Jesus is God's promised King, and his mission is to establish God's kingdom. Now, you, you will probably notice that uh, Matthew, he usually refers to the kingdom as the kingdom of heaven, The other Gospels talk about the kingdom of God, and you'll pick this up as we go through Matthew. But they are the same thing. Matthew is writing predominantly for a Jewish audience, and so he follows the kind of Jewish practice which avoids the direct use of the name of God. So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they are the same thing. So Jesus is God's promised king, and his mission is to establish God's kingdom. But, and this is a very big but, Jesus is redefining what this means. He's redefining what God's king and kingdom look like. From the very outset of his public ministry, Jesus is very popular. He attracts large crowds. And if you haven't got a Bible in front of you, it would be really good um, to do so. We're in Matthew um, end of 4, chapter 5, and in the church Bibles, that's on page 915. So from the very outset, as we read, um, heard read in this passage, Jesus begins his public ministry. He's very popular. He attracts large crowds. Matthew tells us that he attracts people that are coming from Um, Syria, that's kind of north and west of Israel. Um, They're coming from Judea in the south, and they're coming from the ten towns. That's what the Decapolis is that Matthew mentions in the east. So they're coming from a large area, and they're coming, yes, they're coming because of the healings and the miracles, but they're coming because when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, which he does in these verses, Matthew tells us Um, Matthew tells us that he's proclaiming the kingdom. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom, people get really excited because the kingdom is shorthand for something which God's people have been waiting for for a very long time. And Jesus, he's consciously speaking into a well-known storyline. They know what that means. They know, or they think they know, what he's speaking about. 
So when Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom's kingdom or says that the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand, people get really, really excited because they know what that means. The kingdom means the coming of that long-promised king through whom God will free his people from their oppressors. It means the end to the likes of Pilate and Herod, to Roman occupation and the restoration of the temple, that powerful symbol of God's dwelling in the midst of his people. And this was Israel's story reaching its climax. That long-awaited moment had arrived. Back to the but. Jesus is using familiar language and he is bringing in God's kingdom. He is God's king, but he is about to redefine popular notions of what God's king and kingdom look like. For a start, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, it points not to a specific situation or event or even a geographical location, but rather to the sovereignty of God experienced and um, lived out in people's lives. The kingdom is about God's reign, yes. It's about his sovereignty and his lordship, yes. But it's, it's about that lordship and that sovereignty lived out and experienced day to day. And when understood in this way, God's reign, it, well, it reaches, doesn't it, beyond geographical borders and ultimately it encompasses the whole world. God's kingdom does bring freedom, but from sin and its consequences, from guilt, from lack of self-worth, from crippling fear and anxiety. God's kingdom does mean the restoration of the temple, God's dwelling place. But that temple is no longer one of bricks and mortar, but rather the person of Jesus Christ, the one in whom God dwells perfectly. Emmanuel, remember, God is with us. God's kingdom does mean the defeat of his enemies, but not the Romans, but the enemy of death and all the forces of evil at work in our world. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near, says Jesus. It will fulfill all that God has promised, but not in the way that you expect. <clears throat> and the Beatitudes here at the start of Matthew 5, they give us a big clue as to what God's kingdom looks like. As I said at the start, some have likened the Beatitudes to a campaign manifesto, but there's so much more than that. You probably know that the word Beatitude, it, by Beatitude, it comes from an ancient word, a Greek word, which means blessed. That's why it's translated here as blessed. Blessed or fortunate. It carries with it a sense of congratulation but not in the way that we maybe understand that word. For the recipient who is blessed um, is in a good or a better place because of God. Some translate the Beatitudes as happy, but it, it feels somewhat inappropriate to say, you know, those who mourn are happy. It doesn't quite, quite convey the meaning. 
Um, and one Bible scholar, I really like this. Have we got any Australians here? That's a shame. Okay. So one Bible scholar says that the Australian expression, good on you, that wasn't meant to be an Australian accent, but that that phrase, good on you, is perhaps the closest translation we have. Or maybe the phrase, good for you, good for you, when you are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom. Good for you when you mourn, for you will be comforted, not because you are grieving. You're blessed because in your grief you will find comfort. Not because it's good you're mourning, but because in that place of mourning you will know God's blessing. It will be good for you. <clears throat> Another scholar says that against an ancient culture that valued honor and shame, those are really kind of strong um, values, as it were, the honor culture um, in the Roman world. So against that backdrop, we might read blessed as honorable. Jesus is subverting what it means to be honorable or esteemed. You are esteemed or honored when you are merciful, when you show purity of heart. And that would fit, wouldn't it, with Jesus' teaching that the, the last will be first, that the place of honor is to be found by putting others first in service. And in their blessing or honoring of apparent weakness, the Beatitudes are a stark inversion of all that the ancient culture of the time would have considered admirable. Indeed, they challenge what many today would consider to be the marks of a blessed life, money, popularity, status, power. It's inverting all of that. But it's really important that we see the Beatitudes as not simply conferring blessing or honor on those who are poor or do mourn or who are meek or peace-loving. Rather, they are commending a way of living which we, uh, through which we will know God's kingdom blessing. They are commending a way of living through which we will know God's kingdom blessings. Jesus is not just saying that if you're poor or grieving or meek, then you will know blessing. Rather, the way to kingdom life the way to know the blessing of God's kingdom is to live a life, life shaped by the character which Jesus commends in these verses. It is to be those who are poor and deeply depend on God. It is to mourn and weep for things which break God's heart. It is to follow Jesus in the work of peacemaking. It is to hunger with all we have for God's priorities. It is to be prepared to suffer and live sacrificially for the sake of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be honored in the gospel. Comfort for those who mourn, it means more, but obviously includes those who grieve the death of a loved one. And blessedness comes, as I've said, not from being bereaved, but from the promise of knowing God's comfort in that bereavement. And this verse includes not just those who are bereaved, but those whose situation is wretched, who grieve because of their situation in life, those who grieve at the pain and suffering in the world around for all who mourn, Jesus promises a better time ahead. In commending the meek, 
Jesus reverses how the world usually works. Those who gain land, the meek will inherit the earth, we read. Those who gain land, they usually do it through power, through military might, through throwing their weight around. But the way of the kingdom is different. Those who hunger for the things of God, hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied, are satisfied in Jesus, the bread of life. Those who practice mercy will receive mercy in return. As Jesus will say a little later, in everything you do, in everything you do to others, do to others what you would have them do to you. Those who practice mercy will receive mercy. Mercy is a generous attitude, willing to see things from another person's point of view. It's slow to take offense. It lays aside, lays aside any thought of revenge or getting our own back, getting one up on another person. The pure in heart will see God. Those who are single-minded in their desire and pursuit of him will discover his purpose and his presence in all things. Because of their single-mindedness, they will see God in life. Peacemakers are God's children because their lives bear the mark of his character. And those who are persecuted out of loyalty to Jesus will know kingdom blessings even as they suffer. Ultimately, of course, the Beatitudes, they point us to lives modelled on the King, on King Jesus. Jesus lived a life totally dependent on his Father. In that sense, he was poor in spirit, utterly dependent on God. He grieved, he mourned over the sins and suffering of his people, of the people around him, and over those who rejected his message. He was merciful. He was peace-loving. He lived single-mindedly for God. He hungered deeply for the things of God, and he was persecuted for his faithfulness. And as a result, we read in um, Philippians, one of the letters of Paul, in the New Testament, as a result of all of that, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. He was blessed. He was honored above all others. He was given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, he inherited the earth by the way that he lived and died. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I want to finish by telling you about an extraordinary man. I don't know if anyone here has heard of Anthony Ray Hinton. No, I hadn't heard of Anthony Ray Hinton until this week. I stumbled across a podcast about him. He was wrongly convicted in 1985 of murdering two restaurant managers in Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama, sorry. And he was sentenced to death and he was held on death row for 28 years. In 2014, his conviction was unanimously overturned and all charges were dropped and he was freed in 2015. 
He's still alive today. He's sort of in his early mid-60s. And Anthony spent his first three years on death row full of despair and anger, which you can understand, toward all those who had sent him, an innocent man. Um, the evidence is an unbelievable story, but he was an innocent man, and he spent his first three years, understandably, feeling full of despair and anger for those who had imprisoned him. But strengthened by his Christian faith, Anthony resolved not only to survive, but to find a way to live on death row. And retaining his humanity, he lived a life of faith and hope, of compassion and forgiveness towards those who had wronged him, which transformed not only his own life, but the lives of those around him. And he writes in his memoirs, despair was a choice, hatred was a choice, anger was a choice, I still had choices and that knowledge dropped me. I could choose to give up or to hang on. Hope was a choice. Faith was a choice. And more than anything else, love was a choice. Compassion was a choice. And most of those on death row alongside Anthony, they were African-Americans. But there was one young white prisoner who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He was called Henry Hayes. And Anthony befriended him. And the night before Henry Hayes was executed, he told Anthony that having grown up in a community of hatred, Anthony's friendship on death row had told him, taught him what love was. Since his release, Anthony has traveled in the US and abroad speaking about the injustice he endured and how his faith, the inspiration of his mother and friendship helped him survive. And I'd really encourage you to look him up this week. Um, there are lots of interviews and talks about him online, and he's written a book called The Sun Does Shine. It's a deeply disturbing story, an upsetting story, but ultimately it is the most extraordinarily uplifting story Anthony says he forgave those involved in his conviction long before he left prison, not so they could sleep well at night, but so he could. In one interview I watched, he talks about how the system took away everything he had, but that it couldn't take away his joy. It seems to me that Anthony Ray Hinton lived a blessed life. Not, not because of his circumstances at all, but because in living a life shaped by kingdom values, he has known God's blessing in those circumstances, and he has brought God's kingdom to reign in some very dark places indeed. Amen.